0: Well, good morning. morning. Thanks for being here today. And uh, if you're specifically new with us today, we want to say welcome. We are so glad you are here and you're joining us uh, in the mid of our summer series, this six part series that we have entitled Relevant Faith. Uh, We are uh, encouraging those who missed any of those weeks to go back and watch those messages. In week one, we talked about what is there such a thing as absolute truth? Then we said from there, does God exist? Last week, Ron nailed down that the Bible is the most reliable book ever written because it was written by God. If you missed those, the links are at the top of your program notes right on the front page of our website. We encourage you to go back because each message, if you haven't noticed, they each build on one another. They each build on one another, which leads us to today. Today, I would say, is the question that is most important In this series when it comes to salvation when it comes to where you will spend eternity is Jesus really the only way father we come before you and we thank you for this time we have every weekend across our campuses to worship the name of Jesus we thank you for what you've done through this series, Relevant Faith. God, that, that as you are working uh, through your church and just the enthusiasm as we nail down that Christianity is the intellectual, the reasonable, and the most important relevant faith that our world desperately needs today. Father, we ask that you would continue to do that as you've been doing all series, that you alone would speak. So let the words that come out of my mouth And the meditations of my heart be honoring and pleasing to you, O God. We commit this time in your word now, in Christ's name, amen. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, we read that that Jesus' fame was growing. When he was just in Galilee a chapter earlier, thousands upon thousands were flocking to him. They wanted to hear his teachings. They wanted to see his miracles, and his fame was growing. So he finally gets a private moment with his disciples. And he asks them first, what are they saying about me? You're with the crowds. Well, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you might be John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, he had a lot of fame as well. Or or they say maybe he's another great prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah. Similar statements to maybe some people would say today. Maybe you would say this. He's not the Messiah, but man, he's a great, great moral teacher. He was a great prophet. Jesus, I think, was prepping the disciples with the first question to get to his most important question. In Matthew chapter 16, 15, when he looks to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? Forget the crowds. Who do you say that I am? As we're about to see... In Matthew 16, if you keep going through the passage, right after this interaction, it says that Jesus began to reveal to his disciples, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, beaten, crucified, and I will rise again. So it is critical. Time is of the essence. You need to decide. You've seen the evidence. You've seen my work. Who do you say that I am? I believe that is the most important question every person in this room must answer in their lifetime. Jesus is asking you today, who do you say that I am? Students with us today, don't tell me what your parents believe. Jesus is asking you at a young age, who do you say that I am? Spouses, Jesus is saying, don't tell me who your husband or wife believes me to be. I'm asking you personally, who do you say that I am? Don't tell me who your friends say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And don't give me some slogan answer with no evidence to back it up. Time is of the essence. Have you seen what's going on in our world? You read and watch the news. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus is asking every person, can you clearly tell me who I am? You see, we live in a day and age of religious pluralism. Meaning, today it is believed that all religious claims are equally valid. No one religion is justified to make exclusive claims to truth. Therefore, if anyone makes exclusive, absolute truth statements about religion, you are deemed intolerant or arrogant. But as we nailed down in week one, to say that all religions are equally true, that all religions lead to God, that is illogical. We looked at the laws of logic. One of those was the law of non contradiction. Contradictory claims, according to the law of non contradiction, cannot all be true. Aristotle from the fourth century said the law of non contradiction is self evident, meaning it's undeniable. That means if Christianity says Jesus is the only way to God, and all the religions say Jesus is not. The only way to God. They can't both be true. They are mutually exclusive. This statement excludes the possibility of the other. And that leads to the law of excluded middle that we covered in week one, which says it's either one or the other. A statement is either true or its negation is true. They both can't be true. They both can't be false. In our relativistic culture that's based off feelings and emotions and not objective facts anymore, The, the relativistic quote, people often say, true for you but not for me, doesn't work in logic. And it does not work when it comes to the statement, is Jesus the only way to God? It can't be, Christians, fantastic for you. Jesus is the only way to God for you, and you're good to go. Awesome. That's true. And I believe he's not the only way to God, and that's true as well. We're all good. If you love someone, you must speak truth to them. That is irrational. That is illogical, but in a day of relativism, in a day of religious pluralism, that's exactly what people do with religion. Logically, mutually exclusive religious beliefs cannot lead to God, and that's why. If Islam is true, it's eternally dangerous to your soul not to be a Muslim. If Christianity is true, it's eternally dangerous to your soul not to be a Christian. They have mutually exclusive religious beliefs. Just think about the differences on our topic today on who is Jesus. Look at the major religions and their statements of him. Islam says that he's a human prophet, he was a messenger from God like Muhammad. He's not God, and he was not crucified. Judaism says he was a respected teacher, but he was the false Messiah. They're still waiting for their Messiah, he's not divine. And he certainly did not resurrect from the dead. Buddhism doesn't have much to say about Jesus beyond he was just an enlightened human teacher. Mormonism says he's not eternal. He was a created being. He was the firstborn spirit of the Heavenly Father. Only Christianity says he is the Messiah. He is the Savior the eternal Son of God, fully God, fully human. He was crucified, he did resurrect, and he is the only way to God. You know, if we stop playing games about the eternity that comes to these statements, we can forget the bumper sticker coexists when it comes to religion. Logically, all religions contradict. They just do. Either Jesus is the only way to God or he is not. And that's true for all people, in all times, and all places. To answer that question, we're going to look at three areas today. We're going to look first at the non-Christian historical sources. Outside of the reliable New Testament scriptures, we're going to look at what other historians said about Jesus. Then we're going to turn to scripture. We're going to look at biblical prophecy and also the resurrection. And then we'll go to the source himself. We'll look at exactly who Jesus claimed to be. So here we go. Let's begin with the non-Christian sources. Leading the way in these group of writers is two, probably the two most prominent historians of the first century. It is the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus and the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus. Josephus is considered by many the greatest Jewish historian of his time. He served immediately after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection under the Roman emperor, Domitian. There he authored his autobiography and two major historical works, including his most famous 20-volume Antiquities of the Jews. In his writings, he references Jesus. He also talks about the half-brother of Jesus, James. James. Tacitus is considered by many the greatest Roman historian of his time. His famous work, called the Annals, gives the history of the Roman Empire from Tiberius, who was the emperor during Jesus' time, from A.D. 14 up through Nero, A.D. 68, the pipeline of Jesus' ministry. If you look at Tacitus' writings, he includes accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, when Tiberius was emperor and Pilate was his appointed leader in Judea. Tacitus also confirms that Christianity spread like wildfire after this guy, Jesus. With those two prominent historians leading the way, there are 10 known first and second century historians' sources who have been attributed to mentioning Jesus within 150 years of his life. Here's that list. If I tried to read them, I would mispronounce most of them, so you can look at them yourself. Think about this. During that same period, 150 years, Jesus is referenced by 10 known non-Christian sources. The actual emperor of his time, Tiberius, is only known to be referenced by nine non-Christian sources. Jesus is mentioned more than the actual Roman emperor of his time. I share that because the notion... That Jesus never existed is unreasonable. And what is amazing, if you look at what they say about Jesus, it is amazingly consistent, the storyline of what we see in the New Testament. Let me make this clear. None of these historians claim to be believers. None of them claim that Jesus is the Messiah. They're just recording history. But, but look, when you put what they say about Jesus together, look how consistent it is with New Testament history. Summary says this, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He was known to do miracles. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. The notion, again, that he never existed is unreasonable. And I would argue the non-Christian sources, again, support what we see in New Testament history about Jesus' life including that the disciples certainly, the early church, believe he was who he says he was and were willing to die for their beliefs. Will Durant wrote what many consider uh, either the best or one of the best uh, summaries of history in history. He actually won the Pulitzer Prize for his work called The Story of Civilization, an 11-volume work. Durant, not a believer again, But he wrote a chapter on Caesar and Christ. And listen to how he sums up his chapter on Jesus. No one reading these scenes, meaning the scenes of the New Testament, can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality so lofty and ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood. That would be a miracle far more credible than any record in the gospel. Durant says if these guys could make up the collection of stories that they had, that's a bigger miracle than the actual miracles they recorded themselves. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear. And Durant says, constitute, Jesus is the most fascinating feature of the history of Western man. Here's the deal about Christianity. People who want to say Christianity is a blind faith have no idea what they're talking about. Here's why. Christianity can actually be tested. Why? Why? Because our whole faith relies on a person who actually existed in history. If Jesus was never born, if he was never crucified, if he was never resurrected, our faith is void. Jesus existed. And now let's turn to the biblical prophecy in the resurrection that speak of these actual events in history. So, anybody here like probability and numbers and things like that? Am I the only math nerd? I guess so. Okay. Few people. All right, I like this stuff. Why? Because you can't deny math. We talked about this in logic. Two plus two equals four is for all people and all times and all places, no matter what you think or feel, right? Well, biblical scholars have determined that Jesus fulfilled at least four dozen Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. That's 48 prophecies. Many believe fulfilled even more, but we'll just stay there, that he fulfilled 48 of those prophecies. And they all occurred a minimum, many even much later, but a minimum of 300 years before he was born. Peter Stoner was chairman of the mathematics in astronomy departments at Pasadena City College until 1953 when he moved on to Westmont College to oversee their science division. Professor Stoner is best known for a book he wrote called Science Speaks. In the book, he shares while he was at Pasadena City College in her varsity fellowship, which is basically like Campus Crusade, they sponsored a class there called Christian Evidences. One major project for the students in that class was this. Take just eight of those 48 Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and find the probability that one man, hundreds of years later, could randomly fulfill eight of them. That was their job. So they collected all the information they could. They did all the research. And here's the eight prophecies they looked at. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah... A messenger will prepare the way for the Messiah. Speaking of John the Baptist, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. The Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's pretty exact. The betrayal's money will be used to purchase a potter's field. The Messiah will remain silent when he is afflicted. The Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced crucifixion written by David a 1,000 years before Christ, long before the Romans even perfected crucifixion for execution. Now, some skeptics will say, well, wait a minute. Jesus could purposely fulfill those prophecies. That's irrational. Most of them could not be purposely fulfilled. How can you purposely fulfill your birthplace? How can you purposely fulfill the nature of your betrayal or the manner of your death? Professor Stoner says he told the students, in their research, be, quote, reasonable and conservative. Don't stretch your number. Be reasonable and conservative. So here's what he says in his book. After 12 different sets of classes did this probability study, he brought all their work together for a final number. He says this in the book. The estimates used in this chapter are a combination of the estimates given by this class on Christian evidences combined with evidence estimates given me later by some 12 Different classes of college students representing more than 600 students. Students, think about that, 600 college students worked on this probability project of these prophecies. I have carefully weighed the estimates. And Stoner says, I've changed some of them to make them even more conservative. They were told to be conservative. I made them even more. If the reader does not agree with the estimates given, you can go ahead and make your own estimates and then carry them to their proper conclusions. Dr. Harold Hartzler, who oversaw the American Scientific Affiliation, led a committee to review his work and said, the mathematical analysis included here is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. I give you all that background. Let's say this wasn't some random number thrown out there. 600 students researching, such as the population of Bethlehem at that time, and the the connection with looking at all these details, told to be conservative. Dr. Stoner took their work, made it more conservative, and here's the final number he presented. The chance that Jesus could fulfill just those eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is 1 in 100 quadrillion. To illustrate that number, Stoner says this. He says, take a man, put him in the state of Texas, right in the middle, now, fill the entire state up with silver dollars up to his knees. Blindfold him. Go pick one silver dollar throughout the state, just one, and put a black check mark on it. When you release the blindfolded man, the chances as he roams the state of Texas that he picks up the one and only silver dollar first with the black check mark, that's about the same probability Jesus had to fulfill those eight prophecies. Here's the point. When people say the fulfillment of prophecy in the life of Jesus is not important or was accidental, they don't know what they're talking about. And keep in mind, he did not fulfill just eight. He fulfilled at least 48. And Stoner says it's hard to even fathom this number. But to the best of his ability, he says the odds that Jesus could fulfill all 48 is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. One in trillion, 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 trillion. I just labeled this number hashtag impossible. <laughs> unless, unless Jesus is who he says he is. Unless he is God in the flesh. The only one who could fulfill those prophecies as the true Messiah. And only God could accomplish the greatest, most important moment in all of history, his resurrection. The resurrection is found in the New Testament Gospels, which Ron presented last week as the most reliable, the most preserved, and the most trustworthy book in history. For those of you who might be new and wondering why the resurrection is so important, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus never resurrected from the dead, we are wasting our time. Because the Bible says, which matches with reality, that as human beings we are sinners by nature. We are born into sin. And there's nothing we can do to get to God. All other religions, most of them say, you work your way to God. No, 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 Christianity says you can't get to God. He's the perfect, holy, sovereign God. A sinner like me and you, we can't get to him. So God came to us. Jesus, born of the Holy Spirit without sin, lived a sinless life that you and I could never lift. And just like prophecy said, he was born in Bethlehem. And just like David wrote a thousand years before he was even born, he was crucified. And he rose again. Without the resurrection, we are still dead in our sin. That's what Paul says in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And scripture says God loved you so much, what you could not do for yourself, his son came to do for you do for me real person real events recorded in history i believe the greatest evidence that the resurrection actually happened is what we see in the early church as recorded in these non-historical sources who say i don't believe this guy was the messiah but we can't deny this christianity spread like wildfire after this man Paul says that over 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus in scripture there's at least 12 distinct instances where Jesus appeared to individuals or groups of people after his resurrection. And Paul pretty much sums it up in that same chapter, verses 4 through 6, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, that's the disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most who are still alive. Think about that. 500 witnesses saw heard, some even touched Jesus. The greatest evidence of the resurrection is the movement of the early church. Christianity spread like wildfire. Here's what's amazing. That's why Durant and what we're about to see, a lot of people are baffled by the church. You know why? If you look at the writings, starting with scripture about the disciples, they were timid dudes. They often doubted even when Jesus was in their face. Peter, Peter, leader of the New Testament church, denied Jesus three times when Jesus was on trial. What happened to this timid group of people that changed them in a moment and they became the bold leaders of the church, so much so that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, when they brought uh, the disciples before them who were making this commotion and this movement, they looked at them and said, these are uneducated men. How are they doing this? They had saw the resurrected Jesus, and that forever changed them. Pincus Lapid, it was an Orthodox Jew. Uh, he was a famous New, Test, uh, New Testament scholar in the 20th century. Lapid, as an Orthodox Jew, never, never said that Jesus was the Messiah. But he couldn't deny the evidence of the resurrection. He said that he can't deny when he sees the evidence of the church, the evidence of history that says he did resurrect, and zero evidence, zero proof to said he did not. He says the God of Israel had to resurrect this man. His rationale was he must have been an amazing, pious Jew. That's his reasoning. But listen to what Lapide says. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, meaning actually seizing the risen Jesus, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. The evidence from non-Christian sources, the evidence from the biblical prophecy fulfillment which is outrageous, the evidence of the historically accurate events of Jesus' life, most importantly, his resurrection, all supports at the end of the day what Jesus Christ actually said about himself. Here's the Jesus either claimed or affirmed when someone asked of his identity. Jesus did not leave us confused on who he was. Jesus said I'm the son of God. I am equal with God. I am the son of God. He said, I am the son of man. Man, this drove the Jewish leaders crazy. How dare he? That's the messianic title starting in Daniel 7 for the Messiah. How dare he claim to be the son of man? Jesus said, I'm the giver of eternal life, meaning you don't earn your way to God. I give you eternal life. I'm one with the Father. How dare he claim that? I'm one with God the Father. I'm the one who forgives sins. I'm the one who heals. If you're spiritually hungry, you're searching for truth, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You're always going to be spiritually hungry unless you finally come to me. I'm the good shepherd. The church are the sheep of God. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the shepherd of his sheep. No senior pastor, no great evangelist, no elder board. He is the good shepherd of his people. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, meaning you cannot bear spiritual fruit if you're not attached to Jesus, if you don't abide in him. He says, I'm the great I am. Seriously, how dare he say I am? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And that is the Jewish exclusive Hebrew word for Yahweh. And he says, I am. Jesus says, I'm the giver of living water. Just like the bread of life, if you're spiritually thirsty, you're going to keep being thirsty unless you come to me, the only one who can quench the thirst of your soul. He says, I'm the light of the world. In a world full of darkness that we see all around us, I am the spiritual light. And I'm the future judge. One day you will confess who I am when you stand before me. And I'm the judge of where you spend eternity. Lamb of God, in your notes, I should have took it out or just put JTB next to this one. John the Baptist said this one, not Jesus. As Jesus walked by, he says, there's the Lamb of God, meaning that final perfect sacrifice for sin. We're going to drill down that in the coming weeks. He's the door of salvation. He's the exclusive entryway. For salvation from your sin when he was when a woman asked him are you the messiah he says that it is so i am he says i'm the savior and he could not get more clear on who he was as what he said in john 14 6 is he the only way to god jesus says i am the way I'm the exclusive path to salvation. Christians, before they were actually called Christians, were first called in Acts chapter 9 as the people who belong to the way. As Jesus said, I am the way. He says, I'm the truth, meaning I'm the manifested truth. I'm not merely ethical truth. I am the source of all truth. Going back to absolute truth, we don't create truth. We discover truth. It says God is truth, and Jesus was the manifested truth. I'm the truth. And he says, I'm the life that speaks of his deity. Jesus doesn't merely just have life. He's the source of life. He is the resurrected life. Here's the deal. Going back to that question right there. Who do you say that I am? I agree based off what Jesus said about himself and who he claimed to be. There's only three logical conclusions on your answer to that question. And good moral teacher is not one answer he left you with. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, who was a devout atheist most of his early adult life till he examined the evidence of Christ, and he says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense of him just being a great human teacher. He did not leave that open to us he never attended to. Lewis is basically applying the laws of logic to say there's only three conclusions. He says, When I look at Jesus, he purposely made clear, absolute claims on who he was. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life, the only one comes to God. When people say, Christians, how dare you say Jesus is the only way? I just say, Don't blame me, blame Jesus. He said it. He said it. Two ways to look at it. Law of non-contradiction. It's either false for all people, in all places, in all times. It's not true for you, not for me. Or it's all true for all peoples, in all places, in all times. Let's start here. If they're false, if his claims are false, two options for you. Either he knew what he was saying was false or he didn't know what he was saying was false. That's the only two conclusions. Let's start here. Lewis says if he knew, if he knew what he was saying was false, you can't find a more evil man. Those who followed him, history says 11 of just his 12 immediate disciples were martyred for his beliefs, for their beliefs in him. No more people have died for one man than those who have died for Jesus. Just recently, the United Kingdom commissioned a report from the British Foreign Secretary that says the killing of Christians in the Middle East is reaching what the UN classifies as almost near genocide levels. They say that those being persecuted in the Middle East, of all religious groups, 80% make up the category Christian. Here's what they say in the Guardian that reported on that report. Millions of Christians in the region have been uprooted from their homes. Many have been killed, kidnapped, and imprisoned, and discriminated against, the report finds. The level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide. According to that, adopted by... The UN. If he knew what he was saying was false, Lewis says, one classification: Jesus is evil. If he didn't know, if he didn't know, he is the most brilliant lunatic we have ever seen in history. The most brilliant, if he just had no idea. That he was wrong. Those are your two options. Jesus doesn't leave you the option of great moral teacher. Look what he said. Look, at what's been done because of what he said. Those are your two options if it's false. Or, or, if he actually is who he says he is, he is the Savior. He is the only way to a relationship with the living God. The question is, have you made him Lord? Those are your three options. Oh, forgot the last one to make it all flow. Liar. <laughs> Liar, lunatic, Lord. Those are the three options, I agree, that Jesus left us about his identity. Back to Matthew 16 as we wrap this up. Jesus says, time is of the essence. You need to nail down, disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter like usually he does, is first to speak, it seems. And I'm asking you, is your answer to that question as clear as Peter's? Peter says, you are the Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. You're the only way to salvation. And he makes sure it's clear. I don't just think you're a great moral teacher that teaches about salvation. No, no, no. You're God in the flesh. He says you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Can you say that with clarity today? That you have come to the place where you realize that I am a sinner, like the Bible says No matter how hard I can do to work to God, I know I can't get there. So praise God that he sent his son, that he really was born, that he really lived the sinless life, that the events of his crucifixion, his burial and resurrection actually happened. Because he was the only one without sin, he was the only one who could take our place. And he bore your sin on the cross. Is God speaking to your heart today? I say that because listen, to look what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, Simon, you are blessed. Why? He says, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning he takes him back to his birth name. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah, uh, Peter's earthly father. Why does he do that? Because he wants to make sure Peter understands. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, meaning I have zero power. I could have 60 whiteboards on this stage with all the evidence in the world. I cannot convince you that Jesus is who he says he is. Only God can open your heart to the gospel. Only God can convict the sinner of his sin. Only God can look at you and say, I love you no matter what you've done. It's not about what you've done. It's about what my son has done. And he says, you are blessed because this, w- this was brought to you by my Father who is in heaven. My prayer is, God has taken all the evidence. He, he did, it, are you kidding me? A blind faith? It's the most reasonable faith. This actually happened in history. But all the evidence in the world cannot convict your heart. God can. Is God drawing you to himself today? Where today you can leave here with confidence knowing your eternity doesn't start later. It starts right now. That you could be secure in Jesus Christ forever by saying, you're the Christ. You're my Messiah. I trust in you. I confess my sin. And as Paul says in Romans 10:9, I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe not just here in my heart. God raised him from the dead. And I want to talk to the church, my brothers and sisters here at the Bible Chapel. If you go read any of those relevant faith books we recommend, a lot of them will say one of the barriers to Christianity with them and Christianity are Christians who proclaim Jesus as Lord, but man, they don't look any different than anyone else. Their life doesn't reflect that proclamation. Proclamation. will we be a church when people talk about the Bible chapel look I don't know what goes on there but they at least live breathe and act like what they proclaim to trust in we're going to end with that song we started with uh, earlier that Rick sang can you truly say can we truly say when it comes to our life there is no rival to Jesus nothing that competes with with our time talents and treasure man it is noticeable he reigns can people look at your life i questioned myself this week going through this can people say dave loves kristen he loves his three children but man there is no equal to his heart than jesus christ does christ have all of you you're secure in him but are you living in a way that there's no equal to Jesus Christ. And will the Bible chapel be a church where people say that's a church where Jesus Christ reigns supreme?